Good evening and welcome to Thursday's Richie Allen Radio Show. How you doing? It is the 17th of June 2021. It's been a cooler, milder, more overcast day today in the Northwest. That's no bad thing. I've got two terrific guests for you today, so let's get on with it. It's the BBG, not the BBC. You're listening to the Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford in Greater Manchester. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Johan Tengra has a big YouTube channel, a very big YouTube channel called Anarchy for Freedom India. He's in Mumbai, Anarchy for Freedom India. And my pal Gareth Ike connected me with Johan today. Johan is saying some extraordinary things about the situation in India concerning coronavirus, lockdown there, and the pressure coming on people to take vaccines. So Johan will be with me this hour. I can't wait uh, to meet uh, him. I've spoken with him briefly uh, a little bit earlier on. And coming up then in the second hour, I'll be joined by the journalist and former teacher, Nicola Lund. Lovely lady, very sharp, very bright, and has written some excellent pieces for the Conservative woman. So Nicola will be with me in the second hour. Loads to talk about with her. We're going to have a general chat with Nicola. And that's pretty much Thursday's Richie Allen Radio Show. Live from Salford, broadcasting out of Richie Allen Radio Show Towers. That's the one. If you believe that, I'll tell you another. Oh yeah, it's nice for it to be a bit fresher today. But tomorrow, I am one more sleep away from Aircon 4. I've informed the Joint Chiefs we're moving to Aircon 4. And it's happening tomorrow. Some men, Orally men maybe, the Orally men, the O'Reillys are coming and they're going to put a bit of Aircon in this studio. And if we do have a heat wave in August and you're melting and you're uncomfortable, I'll never shut up about it. That's what I won't do. Before I go anywhere today, can I read out an email I was sent from Dory overnight? She says some nice things at the beginning of the email, but I'm not going to read those out. Thanks very much, Dory. But she says, um, Richie, today we buried my dear old Irish dad, Donald Francis Ahern, son of James Ahern and Hannah Ahern from Athee in Limerick. We are here in New Haven, Connecticut, and he was sent off with the bagpipes and Irish drum at the gravesite, as well as a military salute, all of which he would love. I used to tell him about your show and listening to your lovely brogue, but towards the end he couldn't hear so well. I have to add that despite being an old man, he was doing okay until the first Pfizer jab. I saw within two days a drastic decline, and he died almost four months to the day of the second jab. My sisters wouldn't listen to me when I sent them the info from the website on how dangerous the effing thing is and they took him down to the VA to be murdered, basically. Please give my dad a salute during tomorrow's show. He will be listening from where he is now with my beautiful mother and grandmother. Dory, thanks so much for that. He had a good innings, your dad. But I can absolutely sympathise with your concern about the vaccines. Um, so thanks for the lovely email. And you know what we say, I'm sure it was said yesterday, Donald Francis Ahern, or Yeshde Garev on him. That's for Dory. Thanks for the email. You can contact me at any time through the website. Just go to richieallen.co.uk and send me a message. I do see some of them, and I do reply to some, but not all, and you'll understand why, okay? 
Now, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister, his um, ex-aide, his ex-advisor Dominic Cummings, as you know, has been releasing messages which uh, have been critical of Health Secretary Matt Hancock. WhatsApp, WhatsApp even, messages, you've seen them, haven't you? They show Johnson referring to Hancock as effing hopeless. And one message even showed Johnson was considering taking duties away from Matt Hancock and giving them to Michael Gove. Now, taking a responsibility away from Matt Hancock and giving it to Michael Gove is like taking a tray of drinks off of a one-armed man and handing it to, well, Michael J. Fox. What kind of fuckery are you? I said it. I said it. That's right. I I mocked a man with Parkinson's disease. It just goes downhill uh, from here. Here's um, Jacob Rees-Mogg who should have been tested because it, what he, listen to what he says. As the Prime Minister was a world leader. Uh, oh, just let me remind you, Jacob Rees-Mogg is the leader of the Commons. He's a Conservative Party MP and he's very pally with Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock. Here he is speaking about Matt Hancock. As the Prime Minister was a world leader uh, at the G7 with an amazing list of successes uh, to his name from that. A billion doses next year for developing countries uh, of the vaccine. And the vaccine that will mainly go out will of course be the Oxford vaccine. Why? Because the Oxford vaccine is being done at cost price because of a deal so successfully done by my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, the brilliant, the one and only successful genius who has been running health. What? What? You're kidding me, right? He didn't say that, did he really? Brilliant, the one and only successful genius who has been running health. He must be smacked up to his tits, Reese Mark. Over the last 15 months. And I wonder, do they drug test the MPs and uh, the cabinet ministers? He must have been absolutely banging off of his head to describe Matt Hancock as, well, a genius. We'll just leave that one there. There's no need to elaborate, is there? Hey, there was something in the air today. So call out the streets and houses. It's the wrong lyrics, isn't it? Because there's something in the air. I always screw up the lyrics. Thunderclap Newman. Anyway, Skies K. Burley, the ginger ninja herself, tried to outdo Richard Madeley outdoing Alan Partridge. Think about that. Think about that. K. tried to outdo Good Morning Britain's Richard Madeley outdoing Alan Partridge. Everyone's gotten their knickers in a twist over Christian Eriksen the Danish footballer who had a cardiac arrest on the football field last weekend. So all of the news programmes have been covering defibrillation machines. So Kay had two guys on. These guys are experts in defib machines to talk about it. And Kay leaves the interview outdoing Richard Madeley outdoing Alan Partridge. It's glorious stuff. This the ambulance service, of course. So these guys are just chatting away about the defib. And there are great apps. And Kay is listening earnestly uh, which will uh, show you the location of the nearest defibrillator Uh, so learning how to do the compressions how to work out whether somebody's unresponsive uh, and then locating the defibrillator and modern defibrillators are really easy to use and defibrillators talk you through what you have to do you put the pads on you listen you press the button it delivers the shock to the heart it's good that isn't it these defib defibrillation machines, easy for me to say, that you might encounter when you're out and about in city centres. Apparently, don't panic if somebody collapses. The machine talks you through what to do. That's pretty cool, that, I think. And, and uh, with a, you know, a following wind, that will uh, get the heart started again and you will have saved a life. OK, uh, gentlemen, we must leave it there. Thanks so much indeed for joining us. Appreciate- Go on, Kay. Appreciate it.
Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Kay. It's lovely to talk to you, Kay. So, Kay, come on. Exit out of this segment. Say something. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks Richard. Go on, Kay. Um, what I tend to do is, if I go into a building that I don't know, I try and find out where the defibrillator is because, you, ne- you, you know, 99.99% of the time you're not going to need it. But- what, what was that again? What do you do when you walk into a building that you don't know, that you've never been in before, that you've never seen? What do you do, Kay? What do you do? What do you do? What I tend to do is, if I go into a building that I don't know, I try and find out where the defibrillator is because, <laughs> you, ne- you, you know, 99.99% of the time you're not going to need it. But if you do, you need to know where it is rather than thinking, oh, did I see a sign for it somewhere? Um... So uh, we'll so, have more on that, of course, on our website as well. If you want, Alan Partridge eats your heart out. What Kay tends to do when she goes into a building she doesn't know is she first finds the, def- the, the defibrillators. Pessimistic much, Kay? Going out and about with Kay Birdie must be fun anytime you enter a building. As I was saying, Kay, hey, where the feck are you going, you ginger muppet? I'm going to find the defibrillator. Good girl. Good girl. Hey, prepare. Prepare yourself. Students at Goldsmiths University, wait for it now, Please sit down, because the laughing that is about to overcome you is could be injurious. You might fall down and hurt yourself. So, wait for it. Goldsmiths University has told students they can apply for assignment extensions if they have been a victim of racial trauma. No evidence needs to be provided by the Snowflake students, and it'll be assessed through a self-certification process and by the university. Here's GB News, new on the block, with the report. The journalists are Nana Akua and Colin Brazier, who used to be at Sky News. Yes, students can apply for re... Well, they'll just listen to the, to the folks on GB News. Goldsmith University has bowed to pressure from its student union to incorporate racial trauma as a reason to defer essays and exams for black students and ethnic minority um, students. And this will be done through self-certification. So we're showing you a tweet there from uh, the Goldsmiths uh, Student Union president. And she says the university has agreed to our proposal to incorporate racial trauma as a reason to defer essays and exams, which means... Which means uh, this is the students' union woman. She said the university has agreed that we can defer assignments and essays if we've suffered some racial trauma. You would have be allowed to do it later or have a extended deadline for black and uh, people of colour students, which doesn't make great grammatical sense, but. You know, as she says, it will be done through self-certification, which basically means you won't have to provide uh, evidence, no evidence of what this racial trauma said, um, what, we, what this racial trauma means. And we did reach out to uh, Goldsmith University this morning. Um, and Professor Francis Corner, who is the warden of Goldsmith University, said this change relates to our extenuating circumstances policy, which enables students to ask us to take into account serious life events when assessing their progress with their studies, categories include medical conditions, trauma, bereavement, court attendance and caring responsibilities and racial trauma will now be added to this list. We're adding racial trauma. To this list. Uh, This statement goes on, we've put this uh, to Goldsmiths, the statement goes on, self-certification for this kind of support is common at universities and students are entitled to proper support when the need arises. A student must submit a detailed statement which is carefully considered by academic departments who then decide an appropriate response. They say applications are decided on a case-by-case basis uh, with the college committing to providing the best possible 
um, support. Fantastic. Students can say, I don't want to do this exam or this assignment. Why? Racial trauma. No evidence. I've self-certified myself. Dear listener, are you ready? Count to three now. Three, two, one, go. Fantastic. I wish this was around when I was in university. All those times I was too hungover to do an exam. That was every time. Pissed right up I was. Just go and speak to the dean. You alright there, Richie? I am. I'm, I'm experiencing a bit of racial trauma. Yes, yes, yes. A, a, a Paki called me a leprechaun. Oh, is that racist too, is it, Dean? Paki. Brilliant. Imran, you don't have to sit the exam either. We're out of it, mate. Both of us. Because we're so traumatised. Jesus. I have, a, I have a friend called Imran who is Pakistani and he won't mind me using that term for that terrible guy. What's going on? Racial trauma, eh? Madness. Let's move swiftly on. 13 minutes past five. Lots to do. An Israeli scientist has claimed that herd immunity from COVID-19 is impossible unless children are jabbed. The guy is Dr. Asher Salman, the Deputy Director General at the Israeli Health Ministry, and he was speaking to the BBC Radio 4 Today programme. I don't have the audio, I'll just tell you what he said. The presenter asked him if an effective herd immunity is impossible without vaccinating children. He replied, we believe so. Nobody really knows what is the exact line of herd immunity regarding COVID. We don't even know if we could use a term of herd immunity. But under effective level, it seems that we need to vaccinate more than 70% of our population to reach this elusive line. And to do so, we need our kids to be vaccinated. Yes. Sky News spoke to Sue Hanam. She is the head teacher at Litchfield Cathedral School. She's all for it. You will hear the presenter, Sarah Hewson, first, then... You'll hear the head teacher. Yeah, and then we look ahead to September. There is a, a report in at least one of the newspapers today suggesting that vaccination hubs could be set up in schools, model on the testing centres set up in March. Would you support that and how might it work? To be honest, Sarah, I totally support that, as long as we got a little bit more notice than we got for <laughs> the testing centres, um, because that really was pulling an all-nighter for most of us. Um, so I really think that's, you know, in many respects, a perfect solution. Perfect solution now to have vaccination hubs at schools so the children can be can be jabbed. If we've got the vaccines, we have all the children in one place. We are, you know, we've become adept at uh, doing the testing in vast numbers. Um, I think it would be absolutely splendid if it could be done. Um, there, are, there are two schools of thoughts on it as well, aren't there? If you'll excuse the pun, whether it, it's done in school when children return in September or whether in fact it needs to be done in August during the holidays. Yeah, I made the point on my website today. The decision has already been made. The JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, it will basically decide whether children are jabbed or not. It will advise the government. The government will do what it's told. The JCVI has, has yet to report, right? It, it, it is expected to do so soon enough. And maybe not this week or next week or next month, but soon it will, of course, say that it recommends the children are jabbed. It's monstrous. It's tyrannical. I don't know what else to say. It's, I can't, you know, uh, let's, let's leave the adjectives 
aside for a minute. Listen to this head teacher whose job is to protect children. Uh, before pupils return, that's potentially logistically more challenging, I guess, from your point of view. Yes, I mean, I suppose the, the, I, I can see that the practicalities of doing it in school would make it so much easier. Um, and also, you know, the tracking and the records of what's being done and we know who we've got in. We are, um, you know, we've had quite a lot of practice now at having to deal with the kind of logistics that we wouldn't ordinarily in a school. Mm. Um, and, and I do think that schools could do this given the right training, the right personnel and obviously the vaccines being available. Yeah, the head teacher is all for it. She, what about the kids, the kids wouldn't be getting vaccinated to protect themselves as the presenter does point out here. You, you use the phrase social responsibility and I suppose that's at the forefront here, isn't it? Because if we ask children uh, to be vaccinated, we are doing it primarily for them to protect others. Yes, and you know that that is not lost on them at all. Um, I think they, they feel that responsibility really, really keenly. Um, but they definitely see where, in their own eyes, they seem to think that they are very much at the end of the pecking order. And I guess that really is what all the news has been telling them for understandable reasons. We have, of course, got youngsters in school who live, uh, you know, have families at home who are vulnerable themselves or who have been shielding. Um, and I think, you know, you get a slightly different response from them because they have been living the fear in a very different way very different way but it, it is certainly the case that I think you know youngsters as a whole are pretty remarkable and um, I guess that's why I work in a school but they do very much want to play their part currently certainly from the children I've spoken to they think their part is waiting their turn but I can imagine that for some children they feel, and, I, and I, I have had these conversations with children with vulnerable parents, that they feel that they are putting their parents at risk. And actually, that has been a real cause of stress for them. Yeah, real cause of stress for them. Children going around with the worries that children carry around. We were all children once. We worried about everything. Now they've been conditioned into worrying about something that is nonsensical. But the child doesn't know any better. That is, the child worries now that he or she might be a germ carrier who might represent a serious danger to their elderly relatives. Ah, it's difficult to listen to this stuff sometimes. You know, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a steamroller effect really, isn't it? You know, the lies are gargantuan. The media telling you, oh, well, the JCVI hasn't reported back yet and it is believed that they might not recommend the jams for kids. They recommend the jams for kids. You get this all the time. Some of you, I believe, are going to have to give serious consideration to homeschooling your children. Uh, and that might not be, it might not be one of those things where, oh, well, I'll just take the child out. You might have no choice if you don't want your child to be jabbed with this poison, which is what it is. You have no choice to take them out because eventually schools might say, uh, well, the teachers and the teachers' unions, the teaching unions are adamant the teachers need to be protected. Therefore, little Sally, little Michael, little Annette, they need to be jabbed. You'll end up homeschooling whether you like it or not. Crazy, 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 crazy nights. Crazy times, right? Right. Um, this might make you giggle. George, we love George Carlin, don't we? It's a big club and you ain't in it. Never better demonstrated than on Nick Ferrari's programme this morning. He's an LBC radio presenter. Podgy guy. Looks a bit weird, but anyway. Yes, I have 
looked at myself in the mirror recently. Yes, I have heard the old adage about people who live in glass houses. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. I have very thick skin myself. Um, so Nick Ferrari interviewed Earl Spencer, the brother of the late Princess of Wales. He was on, obviously, to bitch and moan about the BBC. We're not going to hear any of that. He then told a rather fetching anecdote about his friendship with Boris Johnson. It's a big club, but you're not in it. Here is uh, Earl Spencer talking about his friendship with that scamp, that scallywag Boris Johnson. Mention cricket. Is the Spencers versus Johnson's game still going on? <laughs> he cheats so badly. Boris Johnson, what a cricketing cheat. Um, we had in, in what way? So he doesn't give an LBW or he says no, it no, didn't? No, it's way worse than that. So he, we, have, we had, I, I've known him forever. We were at I know, yeah, I know you were. Together. Yeah, yeah. And um, I love, I, I know his family and, and all that. So they turn up, but and year after year, I mean, basically the England team would turn up in, in Johnson colours. We had a gentleman's agreement not to do this anymore. And then I counted, there were only about 10 people on the field, including Monty Panasar and a few others, you know. But then a helicopter appeared and his 11th man was Kevin Peterson. It's ridiculous. <laughs> By the way, we still won because he still got to play with various Johnsons. <laughs> I worked out a tactic. It was a T20 game and Stanley Johnson and Rachel Johnson opened the batting. So I called my bowlers aside and said, you're not allowed to get them out. So after 10 overs, they were three for none. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you outwitted him there. That's fantastic. Um, can I say, Nick, actually, an important point. He then came, he sent an emissary onto the field to say it should be now taken to a 30-over game. That's how much he cheats. <laughs> <laughs> and you tell the story with great affection. What a scamp. What a scamp. I don't know. What do you think, Henry? I pronounce it to be the most whimsical jape of the season. <laughs> what was that? I pronounce it to be the most whimsical jape of the season. <laughs> the most whimsical jape of the season. Yes. Yeah, the most whimsical jape of the season. George Carlin, well, he said it best, didn't he? It's a big club, and you ain't in it. You and I are not in the big club. We're certainly not in the big club, you and I. This is the Richie Allen Radio Show, which is live as usual from Salford in Greater Manchester. The time is uh, exactly 21 minutes past five. It's 22 degrees outside. I haven't taken speed. I'm looking forward to meeting my guests. I really am. Uh, coming up in a couple of more. We're off to Mumbai, by the way. We're off to Mumbai. Johan Tengra joins me after this. That is uh, the George Baker selection and Little Green Bag on the Richie Allen radio show. 25 minutes past five this Thursday. Let's get rid of that. Just uh, trying to make contact with Johan there in Mumbai. Might be a minute or two before we get him on. Do tweet me, BBG Richie is the Twitter handle, as you know. Love to get your thoughts on any of the stories covered today. And it's very mainstream media, that isn't it? Let me bring up some tweets there. I'm using two Twitter. I'm using. I'm looking at my account on two different screens because I want to save some some tweets. There you are. Um, Cave Hillbilly tweets me saying, Richie, I made my piece months ago with the possibility that we may have to take the kids out of school. The elder lad couldn't give a shite, but the wee one is in his first year and making new friends, learning new things, etc. And he will miss it. I'm not going down without a fight, though, says uh, Cave Hillbilly there. Thanks for that, mate. I really appreciate it. Let me uh, just uh, get some more of these tweets up there as well. Uh, good evening to Caroline. Good evening to Diane. A lot of tweets there about the old monologue and the jabbing of the children. 
very interesting. We, we might do a, I don't know, we won't do a whole phone-in on it, maybe not a whole phone-in, but we might talk about that because I know a number of people who are, who, who've never been sceptical of vaccines before this time. So they were happy in the past for their children to get the various vaccines, right? The, the scheduled vaccines. Okay, fair enough. But this time, some of them, including my good friend Hayden, my great friend Hayden Hewitt, Hayden has told me that his young lad will not get one of these treatments. And that might have implications. I'm not, I'm not going to speak about Hayden now. But anybody who feels like Hayden might very well have to consider taking their children out of school. Listen to that conversation on Sky today. So there you are. Chris says, Richie, 50% of the time, my essays at Portsmouth Poly in the 80s, it's Polytechnic in the 80s, were handed in a day or two late. But they let me off because the essays were brilliant and they knew I'd probably been pissed for the previous week. Good man. <laughs> Hi to Paul. How you doing, Paul? Thanks for the kind words there. We should get a room, maybe. Caroline says, Richie, schools get paid per child and ones with special needs are worth more. If people did start homeschooling, that would wake the schools up. That's Caroline. Hi to Giz. Thanks, Giz, for your kind words. I must say, Richie, no matter how shit my day was, you definitely make it good with your news delivery. Uh, the tune, that's the yodelling. Thanks, Giz. Nice to hear from you this afternoon. Waiting for my guest to... Uh, signal that he's there, Johan Tengra, on, on the show from Mumbai. I'll tell you why I invited Johan on, and Gareth Ike was instrumental in helping out with this, thanks to Gareth, of course. Iconic. Check it out if you haven't before. Gareth was speaking to Johan today, and Johan told Gareth that the Indian Delta variant has basically disappeared, and things are opening up, in at least in Mumbai. But wait for this. Gareth reported that Johan told him the chops opening up depends very much on the vaccination status of the shop, of the people working in the shop. And if in certain areas like villages, there are a lot of people turning down the vaccine, some of those villages are having their electricity cut off. This is what Johan told Gareth. He also told Gareth that police in Mumbai are pinning skull and bones signs on those who have yet to be jabbed. Presumably to signal to everybody else this person is unsafe as they haven't submitted themselves for, for the jab. Uh, Gareth said, remind me again why it's offensive to compare current events with 1936-37 Nazi Germany. That's a point I was hoping to put to Johann Tenger, but he isn't there. He assured me he would be there. Uh, they're five and a half hours ahead of us there in, in, in Mumbai. So it's about 11 o'clock in the evening there. And he isn't there for the moment. So we'll soldier on without him. And hopefully in enough time, because I want to, plenty I want to ask him, hopefully in enough time, we'll uh, get him on and we'll, 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 we'll chat with him. Don't forget Nicola Lund, the journalist and former teacher, will join me in air too. She's a lovely, lovely lady. Very, very bright. Uh, has written for the Conservative Women woman, say it right Richie, the conservative woman and she's got some interesting perspectives on the things that we've been enduring over the last 15 months. PBG Richie, some interesting articles you might find interesting, you might not find interesting you might not. I, I found it fascinating this Enid Blyton thing. It isn't new news, it's just reared its head again today. You'll know that the woke if you can generalise like that, have been going after Enid Blyton for some time. This is Enid Blyton now that we all read 
in school. Uh, Jean Anne reminded me today of the five find outers. Frederick Algernon Trotteville, Fatty, Mr. Goon, the policeman, all that stuff. Brilliant stuff. Secret Seven, Famous Five, Mallory Towers. Uh, and my favourites were, well, my favourites really were the Famous Five, and uh, I suppose the more, the, the, the books that were more aimed at early teens, maybe, or mid teens. But I loved The Magic Faraway Tree, The Enchanted Wood, Up the Faraway Tree. That series, absolutely amazing. Well, English Heritage is going after Enid Blyton. Now, if you travel around England, sometimes you will come across houses with a great big blue oval-shaped plaque on the wall at the front of the house, usually at the front. And that signifies that somebody of distinction, a distinguished person, once lived there. This is English heritage. What you do is tourists go around, they see the blue plaques, the person's name is on there, and there is a website where you can go and find information about the famous person. And they want to change the the information about Enid Blyton to basically accuse her of being racist and xenophobic because of a couple of things. One, a book that came out in 1966, which I never saw, was A Little Black Doll, where a doll was called Sambo. Now, you will know, you might not know, you, you might know, particularly for uh, black men... Well, I've only ever really met black men from the Caribbean, but black men from the Caribbean will tell you Sambo is very offensive. So Sambo is an offensive term. But in the book, The Little Black Doll, which came out in 1966, the doll's called Sambo, and the little girl only accepts the doll after uh, the little girl washes the uh, face clean. Look, we'll get into that again a little bit later on. I'm delighted to welcome to the programme... Uh, he's got a terrific YouTube channel with thousands and thousands of subscribers. Do check it out. It's called Anarchy for Freedom India. Delighted to welcome to the programme Johan Tengra. And we know each other because he was kind enough to uh, get in touch with me a few years ago about the Richie Allen Show. Johan, you're very welcome. Thanks for um, coming on with us so late in the evening there in Mumbai. How are you? Hey, Richie. I'm great, man. Sorry for the delay, but um, I'm really happy to be here. I've followed you for years and I've, I've followed all your interviews with uh, many people for years and uh, it's a pleasure to be here, man. Thanks very much. Thanks. Don't apologise for being a couple of minutes late. You're doing me a big favour. I know you had loads of stuff booked in, so fitting me in is a massive favour for me. I was stunned, really, reading Garrett's uh, Twitter account today and, and what he said about about villages. If there is a low uptake of vaccine in certain villages the threat of having electricity switched off is being made by the authorities. Tell us more about that, Johan. That's extraordinary, that. This has happened in, in one case as of now. So I, I didn't, I mean, even when I did it on, on the show, I told him that this has just happened in one village. But we're seeing precedents like this being set, where at least in one village up till now in India, I mean, there's a couple of villagers, uh, a lot of them refuse to take the vaccine. And uh, basically, the this kind of uh, municipal authorities and the government threatened to cut their uh, supply off. Yes, wow. so we have we've seen this starting. And as I discussed on the show with uh, Gareth as well, we're also seeing in at least in one place, uh, the police are literally stopping people on the streets. They're asking people if they've been vaccinated or not. And if they haven't been, they're hanging a skull and bones kind of uh, emblem on, on their uh, chest and basically saying that you're a threat to other people. This and is, stuff. And the, the vaccinated is... people are getting another kind of safe... You know, is that right? So this we're talking about one of the world's great cities. I mean, I mean this. If I ever got a chance to travel again, I'd love to travel through India. I'd love to see your country. And you're talking about a legendary, mystical city, Mumbai, an ancient city. 
And people are being told, if you don't have a vaccine, you've got to wear a badge. Skull oh, and no, bones. No, that's that's not happening in my city. That's happening in a village, like in the in more rural area. in rural areas. Ah, right. So the in, in the villages they haven't really done such uh, like they haven't really dared to do anything like this out here in the cities. But a lot of the stuff is going on in the villages, and but there's signs of optimism in the villages as well. Like you know, there are a couple of villagers that have decided that they won't follow the lockdowns and they'll basically like you know uh, just not take the vaccine and all of that. So there are villages that are standing up. And the cities, the problem is a little bit different. In the cities, it's mostly employers that are forcing the employees to get vaccinated and the people who are running factories. I mean, we have municipal bodies kind of going in there and asking people if they've been vaccinated or not. Uh, traders and people who own shops are being put under immense pressure by the authorities to get vaccinated. I mean, at least in my city, in Mumbai, the BMC is putting a lot of pressure on the restaurants to get the restaurant. Johan is just briefly on hold momentarily. Oh, you're back, you're back. Thank God you're back. Johan, this is fascinating. So in did, did I get this right from Garrett's tweet? So in Mumbai itself, reopening after this so-called Delta variant, we'll talk about that in a moment, but the reopening is determined on whether the shop or the restaurant has vaccinated its staff. Are some properties or some shops and restaurants being told that they can't reopen because they've not vaccinated enough of their staff? It's variable, man. Like it depends on on the officer like who's going. So somewhere the the enforcement is strict. Like they are asking people to have vaccine certificates in order to open, and the BMC is putting pressure. It's not like they're totally not being allowed to open, but yes, I mean there is a lot of pressure from the authorities uh, to do that. And eventually it might become mandatory. But as of now, at least in practice, like I know that uh, places are open when they've not needed the vaccine yet. So it it depends on the person you're dealing with. I mean, some people do understand that it's not mandatory. It to take the vaccine because even our central government is saying that so they're kind of you know not being so strict over there uh, some uh, officers are kind of being very pushy and again i mean like a lot of people have already taken the vaccine right so yeah. the problems are kind of different i mean we have people who are being incentivized here to get the vaccine by giving them you know monetary benefits like people who are working in deliveries and things like that they're being incentivized to get it and most of the people around them are getting it right so even the people who don't, don't want to take it they're being put under immense social pressure also uh, to take it. So a lot of people uh, are taking it, but then there are like, you know, brave people standing up in all these different yeah. areas and our organization, I mean, I wouldn't call it an organization, but our movement has kind of come up with letters to help these people to kind of send to whoever is forcing them to get vaccinated. And these letters are working as of now because we've included a lot of court judgments from different uh, courts in India, which have ruled in the past that vaccines aren't uh, mandatory and things like that. So well, it's a kind are. of, I mean, we're getting reports from all over the country that uh, vaccine coercion is happening and uh, my group is working with uh, lawyers as well and we're taking this matter up in the Supreme Court also so that, that there's a lot of work happening on that front. That's that's really good stuff. Well done. Now, on you've touched on something that's very important. The government is even acknowledging that mandating the vaccine is illegal but it sounds to me, Johan, they're being very sneaky. They're they're allowing the private sector to do their dirty work for them. So you mentioned the factory owners and the business owners. It's those people that will drive the vaccination campaign. Is, isn't that right? That's We're seeing some of that here. Well, we're seeing the beginning of that here now. 
Yeah, totally, man. Like, uh, it's all happening. Like, the government is basically saying, the central government is saying, uh, this is not mandatory. You don't, like, you know, you don't have to take it. In fact, we're getting, like, uh, sort of what's called uh, FOIA requests abroad, like Freedom of Information Act. It's called RTI out here. So we're filing many RTIs at different levels, and almost every government authority replies that it's, it's not uh, mandatory, it's totally voluntary. And, you know, and they even tell you why it's voluntary. Like, it's voluntary. Uh, we get to know that because we ask the question like, okay, if something happens after taking the vaccine, like who will be responsible? So they say that, no, there's no liability and we're not going to give any compensations and all because the vaccine is totally voluntary. So it's your choice if you want to take it or not. But then on the other hand, they turn around and there's just, I mean, like there's immense pressure from all fronts. Like we know people in the army who don't want to take the vaccine, but, uh, you know, I mean, I, I personally am in touch with someone from the army who doesn't want to take it and kind of we're helping him fight his case and, and the high court and like he's gone to the military tribunal right now to kind of start the process so there are people like that in different areas who don't want to take it and although on paper the government is saying that it's not mandatory but then there are different yeah. kind of municipal orders and like you know on the ground the situation is very different like the government is saying it's not mandatory but then they kind of turn around and they're telling you know uh, establishments to like at least in one state i can tell you in gujarat uh, this come in the media that uh, the police have been given the power to literally like on the streets, go and ask people for the vaccine certificate. And if they don't have one, they can issue fines against them. So we have these kind of developments. This is, uh, in, this is in a place called Gujarat, you said? Yes, yes, this is in a place. It's, there's a Deccan Herald article you can find online. Police, on, on the, but, uh, listen, I, I know you're, I spoke with Scaris. I know you're reputable, Johan. I know you're telling the truth. I know you believe this to be true. This is in Gujarat. So the police are stopping people, asking for proof of vaccination. And if they don't have it, they're telling the people to go home. It's about to start. That's, that's what oh, the media it's about to start. That, you know. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, that, that is just tyranny. That's insane. No. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah, gone very far. And and you must. I mean, Mumbai is massive, of course. Do do you think? Well, if it starts in you know the suburbs, if it starts in rural areas, it might eventually migrate. This you know this kind of craziness. It might end up happening in Mumbai. Do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, of course, man. I mean, we like we've got so many stories now. Like we just just today we saw a government order where. Uh, in Kashmir, the government employees are being told that if they don't get vaccinated by a certain date, they're not going to get their salaries. Almost all, uh, I mean, big tech corporations, like we have Accenture out here and Cognizant, uh, they almost everyone's kind of, you know, intimidating and almost forcing their employees to get vaccinated. But luckily, our letters are helping. There's a big insurance giant that kind of came out in the media and said that, you know, they're going to have different kind of insurance policy rates for uh, you know, giving vaccination and maybe later on they might not give insurance to people who don't get vaccinated. But then we kind of got the CEO on email to admit that that's not true and that's You're not right. going to happen. So it's like, they, I mean, they, they're kind of, you know, saying again, as I said, the government is saying it's voluntary and all, but on the ground level, like practically everyone's uh, forcing it. And I think most people are doing it because they don't know better. Like even a lot of people who own businesses and all, they think it's for their good and, you know, this just to keep people safe and also. But when we when we get them aware, like a lot of people then realize that, okay, I might be putting someone's life at risk if I force them to get vaccinated. Yeah, so they kind yeah. of step back. And Johan, so tell it, me this. First of all, let me remind our listeners, we're speaking to Johan Tengra. Johan is in Mumbai and uh, I'm glad to, to meet him today. We we spoken on email uh, a couple of years back. He, he's a journalist. He's got a, he's got a channel called Anarchy for Freedom India and uh, he's got a, a lot of subscribers there and some really, really good content. So get over there and subscribe to him. You'll catch him as well as 
speaking with Gareth on uh, on Gareth's programme on Iconic as well from time to time. So check out Johan. So now you mentioned injuries. What are you hearing anecdotally about injuries to people who have taken one of these jabs? I'll tell you, I'll give you some good perspective. So a lot of research into the court cases actually went into the adverse events following immunization system that we have out here. So what I kind of found out after studying that is that uh, just to give some background, like in America, you have VAERS, right? That's the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. So there have been studies that have estimated that the numbers are highly underreported. I mean, there's there's one study from Harvard Associates that talk about uh, the underreporting being like 1% of total deaths and stuff. So if in America, like in a population of, say, 200, 300 million, when all of them haven't even been vaccinated, uh, you have like four and a half thousand, five thousand deaths happening. How do you think it's possible that in India, like almost, uh, I think, 18 crore people have been vaccinated and we, we, we have like, what, 180 deaths, 200 deaths officially admitted in the media? Uh, by the government, I mean, by the government figures. So that just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, so I started investigating that. And uh, I mean, I, our group did a lot of work and we've kind of collated media reports from different newspapers. So from the newspaper cuttings, like we've come to a count of around 2,200 deaths now that have taken place post-vaccination, like a couple of days after vaccination. How many? How many? Say and that again. 2,200 deaths, according to the yeah. newspaper cuttings that, that we've kind of compiled. And again, even that is highly underreported. I'll tell you why. So firstly, the government has given this perception and I mean, they kind of almost brainwash people into believing that the vaccines are safe and effective. So I know so many people like, I mean, I know friends who know people as well that something's happened in their family after someone's got vaccinated, but because they believe that it's so safe and effective, like they just don't make the connection, right? Like if someone, something might happen after taking the vaccine, but they kind of think like, oh, it's from something else or someone had a problem from before and it kind of just happened now randomly. So a lot of people think that. Then there's a tiny subset of people, something will actually happen and there'll be an injury, but they don't know that there's a reporting system. So they don't, they need to go and report that because the reporting system hasn't been advertised. So even a lot of people, like we got in touch with a lot of people and we came across vaccine injuries, like a group came across them and we asked them, like, did you file an AEFI complaint? Like it's called an adverse event following immunization complaint. So they're like, no, we don't know what AEFI is. Like, no one's heard of AEFI. I'll give you another instance. Like, we went, uh, one of our uh, teammates went to a hospital in Mumbai. And there's a very senior doctor and, uh, you know, they were having a conversation. And then it came out in the conversation that he's against these vaccines. So the, the person asked him, do you know about AEFI? So he's like, no, I've never heard of that. Like, he's been in medicine for 10 years and he hasn't even heard of the, you know, vaccine adverse event uh, reporting system in the country. So that's the level of awareness that people have about, like, reporting you know, vaccine injuries or side effects. So the information is not communicated. So people don't know they have to go and report. Uh, that's a problem. And then even if like, I mean, we found instances where people have faced injuries, like after getting vaccinated. And I know, I mean, I know, I know these people personally, they've gone to the vaccination site. So firstly, you know, we don't even have a, like an automated reporting system. It's not like you can just open a website and report it. You physically have to go to the place where you got vaccinated and you have to tell them that, okay, look, I got this vaccine. And then after so many days, like this happened to my family member or they got a serious injury or they died. So I know pe I know people who've gone there and told them that and then they refuse to take the complaint. They're like, no, it's not possible. Like death can't happen from the vaccine. You can only have like an anaphylactic uh, reaction and die from that. Or it can't be like, you know, deaths don't happen from the vaccine. Like that's what these people have been told. So they don't even take the complaint. And this is after twice. I mean, we got uh, one thing on like a sting operation that we kind of made them conduct where they went the second time after being rejected the first time and it's on tape 
and the person's openly saying like no this is not possible we're not going to take your complaint when the gu- government guidelines itself say that any death or any serious adverse event that happens 30 days like following the immunization being given to the person they're supposed to take it mandatorily and just because they take it it doesn't mean that they're admitting that the vaccine is the cause of that like it just goes in the numbers and then they have a committee that then finally decides if the vaccine is related to the thing and even in that committee like the causality assessment guidelines that they're using to determine if a vaccine is actually causing a death they are totally rigged it's i mean it's rigged to to put a highly simplistic uh, sort of uh, version of this they rigged in such a way where any death that happens in india uh, after a vaccine can never be from the vaccine unless it's from an anaphylactic reaction like an allergic reaction anything other than that uh, they basically have rigged the guidelines in such a way where if they didn't notice excess deaths in the trials in the vaccinated group every death after that is a coincidence like i mean this is how they've rigged the guidelines so they can very well portray the perception that uh, you know no vaccine deaths are happening in india because they'll never be associated it's because rigged. these it's rigged and so yeah. so we have you and they're lucky to have you in mumbai but your media is exactly i'm presuming this is exactly the same as our media here it will not speak about vaccine adverse events none of our apart from mentioning that there were some problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine. I mean, the BBC did mention that and that it was not recommended for young people. Outside of that, the media in this country will not report on the government's own yellow card reporting system. It's almost as if it doesn't exist. I'm guessing, Johan, it's no different in in India. they do i mean the media does pick up on the aefi reports like they i mean they have to report what the adverse event following immunization system is saying but as i told you uh, the numbers that are going there are like i mean they're rigged like they're systematically low because of yeah. all the reasons i mentioned like people don't know that vaccines can cause side effects even if they know that then they don't know that the system where they need to go and report even when many people are going and reporting the complaints are not being taken yeah. so these factors are leading to the numbers that come in the media to be like really no i really did hear like, you hang on i did i did hear you loud and clear it wasn't that i wasn't listening i did hear you yo and the point i'm making is you have found out because you're clever and you're a researcher you found out that at least 2200 at least now they could do that the 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 national press in your country could do that just yes, as well i mean i'll tell you the government guidelines openly say like the afi guidelines say that these people like if they come to know even through the media that a death has happened after a vaccine they're supposed to report it mandatorily and they don't do yeah. that and the media does like you know even the mainstream media doesn't sort of cover it in a in this way that and that i'm basically talking about yeah you i'm glad you're on because six or seven or eight nine weeks ago maybe it was i was doing a phone in and a lovely woman called Himanchi rang in from not too far yeah. from Delhi you know Himanchi and she said to me Richie I understand that the BBC is reporting Armageddon in India the people are dropping in the streets they're dying on the streets and there's no stretchers and we can't get people into hospitals she said that isn't my experience I don't see any of that this is being grossly exaggerated so when India was in the world media spotlight a few weeks back was that in any way based in reality was was any of that true johan or was it just greatly exaggerated no i think it was true richie i do i don't think it was a dud and like there were no excess deaths happening or something like that i'll t- i'll tell you why i personally know like i mean in mumbai we have a pretty good network now of people i trust so i at least got two three calls from people asking me that like you know they need to get someone admitted but they're not getting a bed okay. so we 
we did at least in in mumbai we did have a crisis of beds and the hospitals were getting full but i'll i'll tell you the reasons behind that it's not it's not a virus or a variant or something like that what happened is the the fear hysteria had kicked up so much and people the, the basic narrative that is going on is that like you know if you test positive or something you should take precautions as much as possible and many doctors i know personally were just recommending people to go get admitted even when they didn't have symptoms and they just had a positive pcr test like i, I mean I, i know cases like this so even the doctors out here like even the i mean there's a video from a doctor that came from my city itself who's kind of crying on on the the video and saying that like you know there's no place and like you know this is this problem is being caused primarily because people who don't really need beds are coming and filling them so the people who actually need them aren't getting them right. so uh, there's a lot of uh, problems like that that are taking place and also the covid hospitals are kind of uh, you know separate from uh, the, uh, the other hospitals and the beds are also separately allocated so because like a lot of these people who have other conditions like cancer and heart disease and things like that if they get tested and they come positive then they need to be treated in the covid side of things and yeah. those beds are limited so i know i mean i know people inside the medical industry and i know doctors as well you know one of them at least told me that like you know we know that there are beds empty but since they're not for covid like you know you you can't use them so there are some beds that are going empty but because this allocation was made that's why these beds were getting filled up and it's the same story with the crematoriums also like in the the crematorium case like typically what would happen is that if someone died in another place but their hometown was somewhere like you know they would send the body back to the hometown and it would get buried over there but because of the covid kind of regulations that's not possible and then even for the covid deaths like they would basically attribute a crematorium for covid specifically and then they would have crematoriums for other things so the other crematoriums would be going empty but because the covid deaths have to only go to this one crematorium or two nice, crematoriums nice. assigned in the city it would make it look like oh there's so there's so much collection of people happening out there and there's so many people dying but that's just i mean like you know you're just looking at that one crematorium that's been assigned and other crematoriums are going empty just ah. because of like you know a manipulation like this and even in the media like you know they were showing reports of people kind of dying in the streets and all that but they were kind of picking up on old videos from like old gas leaks that happened in andhra pradesh and all well that done. well yeah. done oh you're brilliant johan well done that's right they used um footage and images from a chemical explosion didn't they and uh, and and claimed that this was due to covid what you said there about them using one crematorium while others were empty thanks for saying that because that explains then the bbc footage because you had bbc reporters running around a crematorium and they were they were breathless johan you know it was all very exciting they were saying oh people can't cope with the bodies coming in and of course the rest of the world is watching and i think that's what himanshi meant i think that's what she meant she didn't mean that nobody's dying or nobody's getting sick i think that's essentially what she meant and i mean even if even if they did prove that there's excess mortality like it's it's just logical fallacy to automatically attribute that to a variant like you know there could yeah. be other reasons of course we know the vaccines are killing people so it's no surprise that you know if if you have an excess mortality happening after the vaccine rollout starts like you know that that can be a factor there's also a seasonal seasonality factor like you know i mean we know this from past research i mean i just had a person on the on my podcast today that was kind of talking about this but we know that the seasonal element that mainly picks up in india between like you know march to june that that kind of time period in the summer where people have like an increase in uh, respiratory conditions and then there's also like you know from the deserts uh, the uh, like sandstorms happen and the particulate matter is kind of brought to the northern areas and there's so, so many factors man that that can explain what's going on uh, people being told to wear masks and i i'll tell you what basically happened also that added to this a lot of people were being told to measure their oxygen when they haven't ever done that in their life so these people are literally being like forced to wear masks like the mask enforcement 
was very very strict in india at that time and some months uh, before that and they are asking people to measure their like you know oxygen in the oximeter and we know i mean i know this for a fact that if you put on an n95 or if you put on a mask for a long time like the oximeter oxygen does dip so if you make if you're going to make people do that and then the oxygen levels go below like 95 or something they're going to panic and then they're going to go see a doctor and they're going to get tested and then the test is like you know if it comes positive then that's going to create a whole cycle of things so it's a lot of i mean psychological factors that were involved in like, creating a whole thing and i mean it's like once you start the whole thing once the narrative picks up once people start getting scared and the fear kind of ramps up it's like a self fulfilling prophecy like people just believe that so a lot of people just make it happen that way Thanks for um the information about Gujarat. Faisal, yeah. Faisal who's a listener to the program. Faisal has found the article in the National Herald India. Um and not I told you I didn't doubt you. I did of course I didn't doubt you. Um Johan told us that the government, the Gujarat government has authorized the police to enforce the police. Now listen to this dear listener has given the police the right to enforce COVID vaccination, to go around looking for people without vaccine certificates. This is going on in, in our world in 2021. Johan is with us. Uh, go to youtube.com, look for Anarchy for Freedom India. You'll very quickly find the YouTube channel there. We've got Johan Tengra on the line. He's got We've got another five minutes with, with Johan. You're, you're a younger man than me, Johan. And I'm wondering... I'm wondering <laughs> You are you're, you're considerably younger than me. How how do you feel about what's coming? How, no, no, let me phrase this properly. How concerned are you now about the the sort of world that we'll be living in in three, four, five years, unless people get off their bums and you know dis disobey and 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 turn their backs on this agenda? As a younger man, how do you feel about that? Looking looking ahead. and to be honest I, i always saw this coming like i had read david ike's books when i was like uh, 18 i started like i came across him and i was reading him since then so i actually wanted to drop out of college because i always knew what was coming so i had a big sense of urgency to do something about this but uh, coming at where we are now like it's been 6 years since i started and i've seen a lot of change happen in the country i've seen many people starting to get informed about what's going on and the entire new world order great reset agenda and the even we have many players in india involved directly in kind of uh, pushing this forward so there's a lot of scope for optimism that way i mean if you ask me like our networks are growing across the country we have many content creators who are in a fold now who have big audiences and you know people kind of uh, agree with with what we're saying and they're ready to take many of them are ready to take action so it's there are signs of optimism but then there's a lot of like i mean uh, i mean just what we discussed on on the show right now with all the shikandri happening with uh, the vaccine coercion i mean it just it's very disheartening to to see like you know so many people are being forced like i know of friends who don't want to take it but then it's like the families are telling them okay if you don't take it you'll not be allowed inside the house so it's i mean it's the uh, people are fighting the battles in in many different ways and places but i i think that we will be able to push back against this in some way but if we don't like obviously i i, I totally agree that this thing is just going to get worse and worse because it's not about the vaccines like after it's the vaccines the vaccine certificates the, the variants are going to keep happening and there's going to be booster shots and the climate narrative is going to pick up and you know it's just going yeah. to end goal is transhumanism and you know total human slavery under the great reset so perfect storm it, really it, isn't it when you, when, you, when you factor yeah, in the climate stuff it's going to get very bad it's yeah. going to get bad Thanks for coming on. It's great to meet you properly. A big shout out to my well to our mutual friend, to our friend Gareth Ike for um for for broadcasting the story over here 
what's happening in, in India. And thank you for making time in what, what's obviously a busy day. I know you've done plenty of interviews today. So, Johan, do not be a stranger, my friend. Keep me in mind when you've got news to report. The door is always open to you here, my friend. Thanks a lot, Richie, man. I really respect your work and you've done fantastic work over the years. Thank you so much. Not at all. And the YouTube channel, I'm saying the right one, isn't it? It is. Um, I've been on it today. It's very impressive. Anarchy for Freedom India. Is that where people should go to find out, uh, to see more of your work? Yes, yes. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the interviews are in Hindi. But I, I do try to do English content every once in a yeah, you interviewed um, you interviewed a doctor. I was watching it today. His name escapes me, and that was in English. And it was very, very, very informative. Um, Johan, thanks, mate. Thanks for doing what you do, and Sorry, thanks for giving us your time call. I, I was just saying that uh, people can go and find me on YouTube, obviously, but I'm more active on Instagram. Like that's that's where I post a, a lot of things, so people can follow me on Anarchy for Freedom on Instagram. And tell me, is there less censorship on Instagram than there is on YouTube? Yes, 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 definitely. But I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I've been posting like, you know, uh, videos that are longer than one hour since January. So but, like last year, a lot of my stuff did get censored. But uh, since ja- since the early of this year, like not even one of my videos has been taken down and I'm saying everything. So I, I think it's the length that kind of makes it stick around, there, I guess. Do you? You think the longer it is, the more chance it's got of surviving. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. one. Maybe maybe that's true. Johan, Godspeed to you. Look after yourself. Don't be a stranger, as I said, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Johan. Johan Tengra, who's in Mumbai. What a perfect sound. A wonderful sound from Mumbai. Lovely. The technology is brilliant. And uh, find him on Instagram. I'll tweet him. Uh, he's on Twitter too. You can find him on Twitter. It's Johan with a Y. So it's Y-O-H-A-N-T-E-N-G-R-A. Johan Tengra. Check him out. Top man. And again, thanks to my pal Gareth Ike for connecting me with him today when I couldn't reach him. Gareth will be with me for an extended chat next Wednesday. Wednesday evening. It's about time Gareth was back on. Last time he was on was just before Christmas. So we'll do that. We'll get Gareth on. I'll read your comments when we come back after this tune. A tune. That's C-H-O-O-N, by the way. The Richie Allen Radio Show, live from Salford, with me, the BBG. Native New Yorker, that's kind of timely. My mate John Rorty is in New York today. New York State, isn't it, John? Just outside New York City. Repairing a water-damaged shed or roof, is it? Is it a roof? Could be a roof, is it? Shed, that's right. Listening to the BBG here in New York. Thanks, John. Love John, top man. Right, we'll get Nicola on in a second. Thanks for all your tweets, BBG Richie. To see what people tweet to me, it's very, very straightforward. Where it says search Twitter, top right-hand side, put BBG Richie, no spaces. Write BBG Richie, no type BBG Richie, no spaces. Press enter and you'll see every fink that has been tweeted to me, well, since since the day started, I think. If you want to, if you want to go back that far, you'll see some of the abuse that I get which I enjoy I enjoy greatly by the way uh, hi to Scott hi to uh, thanks Scott uh, Johan was very informative indeed he was I'll tweet him out in fact look his Twitter handle is at at Y for Yankee Tengra Tango Echo November Golf Romeo Alpha at Y T E N G R A at Y Tengra so what I'm doing right now then it's great live radio is a great thing I'm saying Thanks to Johan, and I've just tweeted it out, right? So I've tweeted it out. You'll see it now on my Twitter, and you can follow Johan there. 
because we'll be getting him back on again in the future. So we will. Shall we get Nicola on then? Let's get Nicola on the programme. Now, I came across Nicola on Twitter. In fact, I came across her in The Conservative Woman. I have to say I highly recommend that you check out The Conservative Woman. The website is conservativewoman.co.uk. It's excellent. There are an array of really, really good writers. I know a good writer when I see one. And they're kind of one of the last lines of defence in challenging lockdown, the efficacy of it, the necessity of it, the danger of it, and challenging the necessity of the vaccine rollout. It's one of the last places. Conservativewoman.co.uk, do check it out. And uh, my guest this hour is a former teacher and writes for the Conservative Woman. In fact, her most recent piece is only a couple of days old. It's entitled, I've, I've tweeted this out now, Vaccination, 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 No, No, No. And let me read you just a little bit of it. I'll tell you what, we're going to talk about it, amongst other things. So let me read the last paragraph of it, which is kind of unfair, but I have tweeted it out. She writes, Nicola... Uh, My advice is simply to turn off your television and radio and practice social media distancing. Such activities are increasingly risky to one's physical and mental health. Never put anything inside your body without reading the list of ingredients. Finally, when it comes to government advice, question, question, question. I'm delighted to meet, well, we met earlier. Lovely to talk to Nicola Lund. Nicola, welcome to the programme. How are you keeping? Hi, Richie. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm lovely, and I must point out you're in Wales, and you're in a particularly picturesque part of Wales, is that right? I am. I'm speaking to you from sunny Pembrokeshire. Ah, it's lovely. It's been years since I was in Pembrokeshire, but it's absolutely glorious down there. Brilliant piece uh, on on Tuesday. I suppose we, we, we might start there. Do you think... It's a brilliant article on the risks of taking the vaccine and on vaccine injuries. Is life... Do we feel that life is going to inevitably look a bit different, at least in the short term, for those of us who say, look, no thanks, I'm not convinced that this is safe or has been trialled properly. Is life going to look a bit more different for me and you in the future? Well, it's very concerning. And, um, you know, I was listening to somebody today and they were saying that um, that all they've heard about when people are saying that they're going to take the vaccine or they've taken the vaccine is because they're doing it because they want to go on holiday or they want life to go back to normal. And, you know, nobody's saying that they're taking it because they're afraid of COVID. And, you know, my personal experience is my personal feelings are that I'm, I'm more afraid of taking what is essentially an experimental jab than I am of getting COVID. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fit, I'm healthy, you know, I've not had any um, health conditions in the past. And as I pointed out in the article, I lost my mother nine years ago yeah. and she, she was 62 when she died, but she developed a bowel tumour at the age of 60. And I racked my brains after her death thinking, well, why, why did she get, you know, why did, why did she get this tumour? Because she was, like I said, she was healthy. She didn't drink or smoke. And I then began to think about um, a particular medication that she was on, which I obviously won't name. And she'd been on it for 10 years. And I, when I researched it, it had caused carcinogenic tumours in rats in laboratory experiments. And yet it was still licensed and, and in use and still is in use to this day for humans. And then I met two other ladies um, in the 
few years after my mother died and both of their mothers were on exactly the same drug and both developed bowel cancer and both died young, including one one of them was only 50. That's some so, shock to the system, that, isn't it? That, it that must is, have been a huge shock. You know, I have been a little bit doubtful about pharma- the pharmaceutical industry since then, to be honest. I've never really had the time or the inclination to look into vaccines before now. I've never turned one down. Although, you know, so I've never actually heard of the yellow card um, system, which is interesting. I've never been made aware of that in the past. But having had the time to research now during the last year, it certainly made me, you know, question everything, obviously, and question the pharmaceutical industry. Nicola, there's no good reason or good excuse to not mention to somebody that you're giving a treatment to a vaccine. It's, there's no good excuse that I can think of for the doctor or the person administering it to say, right, well, we're giving you this now. These are, well, first of all, you've, you've been given the list of ingredients. It's been trialled, blah, blah, blah. I don't expect him to go through all of that preamble, but I would expect him to say, listen, if you don't feel well later on, if you're a bit sick or if you have a swollen arm or whatever, there's a website, we'd like you to go on there and report it. I can't think of a reason why they would not be compelled by the government to do that. Absolutely, yes. And even my stepson, he had his um, jab because he works in social care and he told me that he wasn't even given a leaflet. Not even a leaflet. Not even a leaflet. Yeah, we've heard quite a lot. But anecdotally, of course, people have gotten, gotten through to us through the website and they've said the same thing, no leaflet. Lots of phone calls. I have heard from people who, when they were phoned, once once the person said to the doctor or to the, I don't know, the administrator, listen, this thing is still in trials. I've seen the yellow card system. Apparently, Nicola, at that point, the person on the other end of the line usually gives up pretty quickly and says, OK, fair enough then, and just kind of kind of hangs up. Wow. And and for, from your own point of view, I know, I know you're not teaching anymore. I know you do some part-time work and I know you write, you're, and I'm not just saying this, brilliant articles for a conservative woman.co.uk, but not taking it. I mean, I won't take it for the reasons you've outlined. Not being able to go overseas. I mean, would that impact you specifically, you know, in terms of family overseas, relatives and stuff like that? Would that be a problem for you, Nicola? Well, I don't have any family overseas. Um, but we did, my husband and I used to travel, you know, two to three times a year. Um abroad but we're, we're resigned to the fact now that if we can't go we can't go you know we're not prepared to take the jab just for that unfortunately I do have um relative well my I have an elderly aunt um that I am I'm her next of kin I'm, I'm a carer for her and I do visit her every seven to ten days and you know it does concern me as to whether anything will you know be said about the fact that I'm going to her home in future but she doesn't want to have the vaccination either in fact she was admitted to hospital um on april the 5th last year following a fall i hadn't actually been to her home for about a fortnight because she told me to stay away she said look you know even though she's housebound she said i've got plenty of food i'm fine you know don't visit but then she did begin to feel a little bit unwell um although she hadn't been she had a cleaner 
but the, well, I've, I've been looking back at the text messages today between myself and the cleaner, and I, I don't think the cleaner hadn't actually been there for around 12 days anyway. So she hadn't been in contact with anybody for almost two weeks. So she had a fall on this particular day, and I was, I'd already said to her, look, I've got to come up. You know, if you're not feeling well, I'm not staying away any longer. She managed to um, text me um, to say she'd had a fall. So I called um, 999 and I met the first responders at her home because they've got a, she's got a key safe. So they let us them, themselves in. Anyway, she, all her, they said to me, all her obs are fine. They took, they said, I just wanted to go into hospital because she can't support her weight on her walking frame. So she's just going in, you know, for that reason, just to get her well and out again. Very, but very important. Emphasize, very important to emphasise that point, isn't it? That her, her life was not in any danger. She was a bit sore and she couldn't put weight on her leg. This um, yeah. elderly but healthy woman. So let's get her into hospital for that very reason. She can't put weight on the leg. This is important. Yes. So 24 hours later, she they said that she had. Well, let me let me sort of just rewind a little. When I was on my way home that day, I had a phone call from the hospital and they said that, you know, her kidney function was a little below par and, you know, um, but, but, you know, she was a little bit frail. And so they said they had a discussion with her and she'd agreed to a DNR and which took me aback a little bit because I know what she's like. And I thought, well, I'm surprised that she's agreed to that. Um, Anyway, they said she's swabbed negative, but we're going to test her to rule out the virus. And then 24 hours later, I had to actually ring the hospital to chase them up. And then they said, oh, yeah, she's tested positive and she's going to the COVID ward. But since she came, after she came out of hospital, I brought the subject of the DNR up. And she was absolutely adamant that no way had she agreed to this. And she's very switched on, although she's now 89. You know, she's very, very, um, you know, switched on mentally. So we requested her medical notes and um I, I found out in the meantime that it doesn't as Jackie Devoy said on your show last week you don't have to have someone's agreement for a DNR you know it is up to the, the clinical staff if they decide it's appropriate um, and it's a risk to, to perform um you know CPR so they didn't really need to lie they, they, I, I, they didn't need to tell me that she'd agreed to it um and anyway, whilst looking through her medical notes, I've also come, it's take, took me, lo- taken me a long time to go through them because I had a ream, you know, yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. thick ream of notes. And one of the um, clinical notes on there, which is a, a few days into her hospitalisation, it actually says, um, in worsening inflammatory markers, and underneath it says, question mark, COVID-19 onset. And underneath that, it says, question mark, consistent with bacterial pneumonia. So in other words, I've asked the doctor um, this, you know, what, what he thinks. And he said, yes, this, so really they didn't know. So it's, you know, it's concerning how, how many um, people are being put, labelled as COVID and they're not. And they're not really. Or, 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 yeah. maybe, or maybe they don't know, you know, conclusively. Um, and then even today, I, I, I'm still going through them. And I this morning, um, when I, I noticed that there's been a lot of talk in the last week about midazolam. Yeah. And we, we know that the government was stockpiling at this time last year. And 
this, this today on her notes, I've noticed that she was actually given midazolam on the 11th of April. And um, it's, it says indica indication here, um, agitation. So it looks like they've given her this midazolam, which is a sedative yeah. for agitation. But then I couldn't see anything in the um, actual clinical notes to say that she was agitated that day. You know, I mean, this is something I'm going to take up with them, with, with the health board, um, because it's a strange thing to give because I've done a very quick search of midazolam today online and, you know, I'm going to look into it more. Um, but it actually says that um, special caution needs to be given in administering to over 60s. Well, she's way over 60, obviously, and patients with chronic respiratory insufficiency. So if she's in there with a respiratory condition, you know, should they even be giving her midazolam? So this is something a little bit concerning. The answer is no. I think we can say that safely. No, yeah. I, without, I shouldn't maybe editorialise, but I can. The answer is no, and they would know this. This is a dangerous drug to give somebody if you think they've got a respiratory infection because it could cause them... It could make it even more difficult for them to breathe. It's a, a strong sedative and, and, and a relaxant, a muscle relaxant. It's deadly, potentially deadly dangerous. I hope you're listening to this, dear listener. This is very serious. We've got a real journalist on the programme, Nicola Lund, and she's talking about her aunt's experience in hospital, her 89-year-old, otherwise healthy aunt who had a fall. Her aunt had a fall. She went into the hospital because she couldn't put weight on her leg. And in there, they were, you know, said, oh, we, she might have COVID, she might have bacterial pneumonia, we don't know, bit of inflammation. Um, Nicola managed to get the notes. And amongst the notes, and this is very prescient, this, very timely, this, were, were that Nicola, Nicola's aunt was given midazolam. And we heard last week from a number of people that they feel that their loved ones were given midazolam and morphine. Essentially, they believe, essentially, to, uh, to ease them out. Uh, people who otherwise should have made a full recovery after being in hospital, they believe, the people I spoke to last Thursday, and Jackie Devi, who's been on this for nine months, believe that they're being euthanised. That's what this is about. And sorry to cut across you, Nicola, but just, just, just to go back to, to, to Thursday, because it's important. And I know you've had a conversation with your, with your aunt, and she even talked about being bumped off, did she? She mentioned it as a joke, maybe. Well, yes, I spoke to her this morning and I said, look, I've just discovered on your records, because I was telling her the midazolam um, story this week, because she alternates. When she came out of hospital, she said, I think it, I think they're exaggerating it, because she was sent to the Dragon Heart Hospital, which was the only field hospital in Wales that was utilised. And she said, I saw hundreds of empty beds in there. And she said they would wheel us in the wheelchairs out, you know, if it was a sunny day. And um, there were probably only about no more than 50 of us in there, she said. And this was actually substantiated then by the BBC a few months later. They did actually say that I think there were 46 or 47 patients that were ever admitted into the, the place. So anyway, um, I've been she, she came out of hospital in that frame of mind that it was being exaggerated. But then obviously she spends all day in front of the television and she's wavering you know she's watching a bit of Jeremy Vine and then she's coming back to me and saying oh what about this and what about that and then every time I go to visit I'm saying well this is what you need to know and this is what you've heard on television is not you know accurate um so I told her today I said do you remember I was telling you about midazolam last week yes she said I said well I've actually found it in your notes in your, on your records and she said 
do you think they were trying to bump me off? And, you know, said. yeah. I said, well, we're going to look into it. So, And what can be done? Uh, Nicola, this is, I mean, this is a $64 million question. You know, there's there's a kind of Stuart Wilkie told me on Monday that there seems to be an omerta around this whole area. I think that's the term he used. It's what the, the mafia would use. Nobody will say anything. You know, doctors won't speak out, nurses won't speak out for fear of repercussions. But this is going on. I, I, I want to mention something that Jackie uncovered. There is a document of a conversation between Matt Hancock, the health secretary, and a guy called Dr. Luke Evans, who's a Tory MP, they discussed the use of certain medications to give COVID patients a good death. Now, that is bombshell stuff. It really is. They're actually openly, well, they were openly discussing last year how to give people a good death. That means expedite their exit from this mortal coil, basically, doesn't it? In an yes, utter. it's very concerning. I know, and and when you consider that, I think the UK has something like a five point three trillion pound uh, pension black hole. You know, then you think, well, <laughs> the cynic in me. Is you want you wonder who benefits. Look, you and I have watched enough Lieutenant Columbo's, haven't we? We've watched enough Jessica Fletcher's over the years. Not to be not to be joking about this or not not being glib, but we have to you know, and you always look at who benefits. If lots and lots and lots of seniors who are maybe they're unwell, you know, many of them, maybe they are, but they're treatable and they're not being treated and they're being helped on their way. Well, it's the biggest story since the Holocaust. In my for for my money, if it's going on, I can't say, you know, for sure it's going on. But I know the people I've spoken to are not lawyers. I know Jackie Devi's not a lawyer. Uh, I know you're not a lawyer, and that's in your in your aunt's notes. There's no excuse for administering that drug, and at the very least, the hospital should explain to you and your your aunt. And I bet you can't wait to get you know a response from them, Nicola. Yes, I mean that's yeah, that'll be my next task is you know to contact them and ask them about this. And um, there there is more to say about the DNR, but I'm not gonna I'm gonna hold back on a few of yeah. the the facts surrounding that because that's hopefully going to be the basis um, of my next article. Understandably, yeah, about her, about her DNR. Well, we can pick it up um, in in the near future with you again. Let me just uh, do a, a quick reminder. You can follow Nicola, by the way, on on Twitter. It's uh, pretty easy to follow her on Twitter. There, it's at Mrs Lund L U N D at M R S. L-U-N-D uh, is where you'll find Nicola. Read her conservativewoman.co.uk. She's a former teacher and a journalist. I want to ask you in a moment about kids and about what, I mean, you've taught children what, what this might be doing to them and will they ever recover from it, Nicola? We can have a chat about that in a moment. But um, look, I ask everybody this. If I'd have said to you a year and a half ago, two years ago, listen, in 18 months' time or two years' time, the government will be telling us when and where we can go and where we can't go, when we can and can't leave our homes, that we can't hug people at certain times, that we might have to carry around vaccine passports to show to people that we're not a threat to them, that we're healthy. What do you think the Nicola Lund of 2019 would have said? Would you have believed it? Oh, it's absolutely dystopian, isn't it? And, you know, when I, I went back to teaching part time, um, because obviously I was looking after my aunt and um, 
working in, I've got a one day a week I work in retail. So I went back to supply teaching part time and I, I was warned by a colleague, that the former colleague that was still teaching that I would see a big difference in behaviour in after leave it, it was a there was a 10 year gap and she was right you know that the, the behavior has sadly got a lot worse um i've been bitten by a four-year-old um i've seen a lot of, i've seen children having meltdowns which you never used to see really back in the in the 90s when i first qualified and there are children being labeled now ebd which is emotional having emotional and behavioral difficulties they're even opening up um, units attached to some schools um, for for this, and I'm just imagining now. What, I, I made the decision last year because it's it's a thankless job, really. It's not the most satisfying of jobs, and I just thought, no, I'm I'm done with teaching now, and um, I just imagine that having been out of school for that length of time and having had this or uh, you know this this atmosphere of fear all around them i would imagine the, the behavioral problems are going, going to going to get, get worse, worse. And, and before you before know, before you quit i don't mean quit before you left teaching 10 years ago was it mostly an enjoyable experience it sounds like you you were teaching um very young children which must be i suppose at times it must be joyous but at other times it must be crazy but did you enjoy it largely nicola Yes, definitely. I, I did it for 10 years and I, I did enjoy it and I was in a lovely school, but it was just the usual thing. You know, there was um, too many curriculum subjects and we have an extra one in Wales because we have to teach Welsh language as well. And then you've got um, extra demands such as, you know, you've got extra initiatives being pushed on the schools all the time, like healthy schools, eco schools. Um, it, it was just unmanageable, and, and we we could never consolidate learning. You know, there was not too much breadth and not enough depth, really, and it was right. kind of frustrating, really. And then, you know, you even though you've you in theory you've proved yourself when you've done your degree and you've got your qualified teacher status, you still have to keep um, proving to you know the powers that be that you, you can teach you have to keep being observed maybe once a term by your head teacher you have to be observed by other curriculum coordinators and you know it's not yeah it's just are we back to Blair again are we was this was this Tony Blair's genius this change this transforming of education and introducing targets for every occupation was that when things began to get a bit difficult the Blair years um, well, for me, it was it was like that from the start because the, the, right. the national curriculum came in, I think, in 1988, just before I I qualified. Um, I'm not sure which prime minister would it, that would have been under, but um, 88 would have been Thatcher, wouldn't it? It would have been, yeah. I think it would actually, yes, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I was fortunate that I was able to go and work for my in my father's in the family business. My father's got a business, um, a retail business, so. I was lucky that I had, I had an escape route from teaching because all of my colleagues were saying, can we come with you? Can we come with you? you? Know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going <laughs> to say, Nicola, when, when you did get tired of the bureaucracy and the difficulties 10 years ago, I bet you weren't alone at the time in leaving. I bet you quite a few more joined you. Maybe not necessarily from your school, but I mean, I, I presume at that time, teachers, many teachers were getting fed up of it maybe. 
Oh, yes. Yeah. And I think they're having difficulty recruiting now, um, especially at secondary level. You know, they're not hitting the targets for recruitment in, in Wales, certainly. What do you think will come of that? So there are those, I've interviewed people, who believe that is kind of part of some plan to eventually take teaching online. Where, 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 well, go ahead. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because one of my articles that I've written recently um, is about the Welsh Government and its, res- its response to the pandemic. And um, I basically found out that Wales is the country in the UK which has the closest, well, it has a collaboration with the World Health Organization and it's called, it's, it's Public, Public Health Wales's collaboration with the WHO and it's called the International Health Coordination Centre and they've entered into a four-year collaboration. Um, I will come, it is relevant to what I'm going to say about education. The webpage states, um, the webpage of the IHCC states openly that they are working to support the WHO in the United Nations Agenda 2030 and it says that the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which was passed here in Wales in 2015, is actually Wales' equivalent of Agenda 2030. And in 2018, um, Welsh Government plan, a Welsh Government plan was, was published for health and social care. So it was already planning that more services in future would be provided outside hospitals and closer to home. And also the IHCC, um, the International Health Coordination Centre, published a report in February of this year. It was a, report, a response to the COVID-19 so-called pandemic, stating that education could be transformed completely. And I've got here in inverted commas, um, it mentions agile response um, educational systems, such as schools and formal teaching disappear altogether. Disappear so, altogether. That's what it's saying in this sort of, yeah, in this report. You know, it's a, it's a possibility that they've obviously looked at. And the great, this, and, this great um, reset agenda, Nicola, you know, I, somebody said to me the other day, I can't remember who it was, what a silly conspiracy theory this great reset is. And I said to the person, and to be fair to the person whom I met outside uh, in public, he did have the, the humility to, to pause. I said, well... It's 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 obvious if you open your eyes. I said I, I'm not I don't don't tend to be arrogant with people, but I said that once we were told there was a pandemic, look at how quickly people and and groups and associations came out in all aspects of life came out with these plans to transform shopping, to transform education, to transform the way we build. I said, you think it's a coincidence that within weeks, within days of everybody being told to stay at home, documents were emerging, that um, there were plans to transform everything. And to be fair, the guy stopped and he went, you know, I suppose there is that. But, but there is that, I, isn't there, Nicola? Oh, absolutely. Well, um, yeah, Public Health Wales have also um, said that they want NHS Wales to be carbon zero by 2030. They're also they're undertaking. They want a feasibility study for thirty percent of NHS staff to work remotely, and this feasibility study is supposed to be carried out by twenty twenty two. Public Health Wales has been working with the Carbon Trust 
and they also state that the NHS is the largest public sector emitter of carbon emissions. And you've got then, there's the Welsh Government, this was mentioned in my article, Welsh Government Engagement Approach for Low Carbon Delivery Plan 2, which is a bit of a mouthful, implicitly suggests that indoor exercise and buying clothes is bad for the environment because it talks about people's behaviour during the pandemic and says that it, people have been more green by um, upcycling clothes and exercising outdoors. So to me, that implies that indoor exercise and buying clothes is not so good it's for the environment. Yeah. And also, they um, European studies have estimated that small and medium enterprises, so the small businesses, are responsible for 64% of carbon emissions. So then this makes you think, were they targeting the non-essential, the so-called non-essential businesses for this reason, perhaps, you know, maybe they're priming us into traveling less and being less green by having these lockdowns. Yeah. Who knows? I, 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 I realized pretty quickly last year, this is my opinion now, this, this is not necessarily Nicola's opinion, but the virus is the excuse for everything that's that's common. I remember, I've mentioned this a few times on the programme, Nicola, I was watching Dermot Murnahan. it must have been only a couple of weeks into the whole thing, into the first lockdown. And he interviewed an Irish lawyer called Fanula Nee Aylon, who has worked in New York, United Nations, she's very well known, very articulate lady. And uh, most lawyers are, I suppose. And she said to Murnahan that she was really concerned, and this is only two weeks into it, about what was coming, what was going to happen. And she said it's almost like all of the things that are happening now, all of these changes, these negative, you know, very dystopian changes, it's almost like that these were on a list that were in a drawer that people were waiting for the opportunity to use them. And the virus is the opportunity. And I remember, of course, you won't be surprised, Nicola, Murnahan's gallery, the producer obviously told him, get her off, get her off at the speed of light. And Murnahan abruptly ended the interview. And I've not seen Fanula Nihalon anywhere else, but she's very highly regarded in legal circles in, in New York. And she said, look, this is going to be terrible and it's wrong. And it's almost like that they were waiting for a chance to, to do all this stuff. So I, for me, you know, the virus is the excuse for what we're seeing. And, you know, there, there might be people listening to this and they might think, crazy conspiracy theory. But it's happening. It's happening right now. The people that are saying crazy conspiracy theory are the ones that were told that three weeks to flatten the curve. These were the ones that were told by Matt Hancock in January. When, when we get to very senior people that are very vulnerable, vaccinated, we'll cry freedom and we'll all open up and we'll, it'll be ring, ring around the roses. It'll be fantastic. Uh, he lied. None of that. These same people are still crying conspiracy theory today. They've gotten their two jabs, um, sadly for some of them. Um, they've waited their eight weeks and now it's not giving them the freedom they wanted to. And rather than turn their... Anger. I don't. I, I shouldn't say anger. Rather than focus on the problem, the people responsible for it, they're coming after people like you and me. Even though people like you and me, and you particularly, Nicola, to, to your credit, warned them that they wouldn't get the freedoms that they were told they would get. I don't understand why more and more people can't just be a little bit more humble and admit that something very, very, very sinister is going on. 
I don't know what it, what it will take to shake them out of their, I don't know, cognitive dissonance, uh, Nicola, but they need to do it quick, don't they? Absolutely. And everything that I've mentioned today, everything that I've referenced in my articles is, you know, it's are things, documents and things which it's are found true. on the Welsh Government website. And, you know, this is this is fact. This is not conspiracy, you know. And I just wonder sometimes have people become so accustomed to binge watching TV and films, you know, with Netflix and on box yeah. sets. Yeah. on Sky, are they finding it harder to distinguish between fantasy and reality and have they just become lazy thinkers, you know? Yeah. Richard from Right Said Fred said to me last night that Don Jolie, the comedian, um, did an experiment where he put a high-vis jacket on him and he started telling people somewhere to move over there to the right in public. And instinctively, Nicola, instinctively, they did because the jacket implied, for them it implied some sort of authority. And nobody said, come here, who are you to be telling me where to walk? Yeah, I I was listening to it actually. It was very good, very good interview. But isn't that, thanks Nicola, isn't that terrible? You know, that people would just, oh yeah, 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 we will, yeah, yeah, we, it's like the Stanford experiments and, and stuff like that. Oh yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll just go along Absolutely. with it. Nicola Lund is our guest. Time is flying. It always is when you're being, when, you, when, when you're having an interesting conversation. Nicola is a former teacher. She is a very, very good writer. And I'm not just saying that. She is good, conservativewoman.co.uk. Um, brilliant and very important piece in the, on the website only a couple of days ago about vaccines. And Nicola talks very candidly in the piece about her, her mum, who's sadly no longer with us. Her mum um, took a medicine and um, not, you know, some years after taking it, uh, her mum came down with cancer. And Nicola was able to do a bit of research and find out that the drug, which we're not going to mention today, um, was, was um, widely used and that it was known to have given carcinogenic tumours to rats in laboratory experiments. Nicola's mum came down with bowel cancer and later died. And that must have been, I think you said it yourself, it was a big eye-opener for you, um, you know, in, in, in the way we trust. We, we, we put our trust in pharmaceutical companies. But more importantly, we trust our governments to, uh, to, to monitor th- these pharmaceutical companies. Nicola, I must ask you, on that, I thought it was pretty honest of June Rain, who heads up the MHRA, which is the Medicines Healthcare Regulatory Agency here in the UK, early, either early this year or late last year, she was speaking to a Commons committee and she was asked about the role of the MHRA. And I've got the clip, I don't have it to hand now, but I can play it again tomorrow. And I would have expected the answer would be, well, it's our job at the MHRA to do everything in our power to make sure that a bad drug doesn't end up on the market in the UK. No. June Rain said, our job is to provide access for the pharmaceutical yes, I companies. Do. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I know. I recall that. And you're thinking, if you're, if you're on that Commons Committee, you, you're, you're going to go over the table, not literally, but metaphorically, and say, hang, hang on a second, Ms. Rain, isn't it your job to make sure that, you know, we don't end up taking bad drugs? But no, she felt it was her role to provide access to the market, to the big pharmaceutical companies. Um, it, was, it, was, it was startling. 20 minutes to uh, the top of the hour. Nicola, I, I asked um, Johan in, in, in the first hour, where are we now? You know, are, are, is there hope 
that the things they're talking about now, injecting children in schools, at vaccine hubs in schools. We heard a head teacher today saying that that was a great idea. The JCVI have yet to, you know, give their decree on whether the kids should be vaccinated or not. It all looks doom and gloom, looked at from a certain angle. You know, dystopian was the word you used speaking to me earlier on. What are we going to do? It's a terrible question to ask anybody. Who has the answer? What can we do to stop it? Or are, like, like I had Rachel Elno on the programme, the former Dragon's Den star. She said to me, basically parallel communities. You know, communities of people who disengage from it and let the rest of them get on with it. The ones who've swallowed the, the vaccines and swallowed everything else. How do you see it playing out? Tough. Who knows? I, I don't know. I try. I, you know, I just try not to think too much yeah. ahead. I'm just taking every day as it comes at the moment. I'm I'm horrified at the prospect of children being routinely jabbed. You know, when there's a, they're at no risk, and I just think you know. I try to say to people, if you haven't switched on the the television in the last. 15 to 18 months and not listen to a news report would you actually be looking at a pandemic you know are yeah. you, is that what you're witnessing yeah. is it bear any relation to what you're seeing and uh, you know i don't know anybody that's actually well apart my aunt has apparently had covid but um very few people well i don't know anybody that's close to me or that, that died and yeah I just don't see this urgency for, for, for jabbing children. None of my with a, no, none of my daily contacts. I meet about a dozen people a day, and some of them have never heard of the radio show. One or two of them have, but we don't talk about it. So I meet about a dozen, and all of them concede not concede concede's a bad word. All of them have said to me they do not know of anybody who became gravely ill or needed to be hospitalised. So some of them have said, yeah, my sister had the virus, she was unwell for a few days or whatever. Nobody has said to me, and I I pointedly, I ask people, and they just, they just, uh, they say, no, no, it's very difficult to find somebody who says, yes, I know somebody who passed away from it. And and that's extraordinary because they want us to believe that 128,000 died from it. That's 128,000 who uh, 28 days after testing positive uh, for COVID. Another, not so personal question, but but I'm fascinated. You're obviously um, an intelligent woman. Obviously, you know, you've taught, you're an excellent writer. You'll have friends who will be intelligent and will be coherent. Like everybody else, I suppose, in our situation, you'll be talking to people and you'll um, you'll be given your side of it. What sort of reaction do you get from people, Nicola, when you do? Well, to be honest, I'm not... There's a number of friends that I used to be in contact with, I'm not really in contact with now. It's. Um, I think they, they, they know from a couple of my articles that I've shared what my feelings are, and they, so they've chosen not to to sort of keep up the friendship. Um, but I have actually got... I'm in touch with a lot of people now in Pembrokeshire who, um, through Stand in the Park, who think along the same lines as I do. So, you know, to be honest, I spend a lot of my time speaking to them, really. And 
Um, well, I'm trying shame, to sort of drip feed information to my colleagues in work, and uh, there are a few of them who are quite open to what I'm saying. You know, they're, they're listening to what I'm saying; they can't really dispute it. But yeah. I, you know, a lot of a lot of them don't really keep up with the news. They don't keep up so much with current effects, you know, current events, current affairs. Um, There's a way of doing it too. I, I, I guess your teaching experience comes in handy and you're obviously very nice. The way to do it is to be, is not to be dogmatic or kind of know all. I mean, I, that's how no. I, that's how I do it as best as I can. Cause I can be, you know, obviously I can be strong. I can be loud, but with people I don't know when it comes up again, when I'm in the park, I really just try to be absolutely gentle and, you know, lower the voice and say, well, I don't know, you know, I've heard that, you know, the, the vaccines are, they're not really, they're in trial for another while, maybe another year or two. And, you know, I've heard that more people are getting injured or, or getting side effects from them than maybe they're letting on. And I'll just drop it in there, but I won't be dogmatic. I think that's the approach, um, Nicola, isn't it? Not to be dogmatic. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying not, re I'm trying not to talk about the vaccine to people for obvious reasons, because yeah. a lot of them are already had it, They've but had I it, am yeah. where, where possible trying to, bring up the subject of the testing and yeah. the PCR and, you know, um, and things like that, you know, and tell us yeah. about tell us about stand in the park because quite a few people have sent me messages about this and it must go on in my local park but i haven't come across it yet that being said i'm in the park at the crack of dawn most mornings usually and then i'm i i, I don't go in there at the weekend tell us about it what what's the idea behind it well i think it started in australia um a chap in australia started it and he he went to his local park on a Sunday morning between 10 and 11 because he just, I think he felt sort of isolated and he couldn't, you know, he, he couldn't understand the thing, everybody's thinking and he was, you know, he wasn't seeing the fear and everything that like, as we don't. And um, he, it's, it's really taken off and it's spread across the world from what I understand. And there's a, I know that there's a group on Facebook, which is Sand in the Park UK and if you join that group, then you can find out where there's this, there's normally a designated park in each sort of county area. Um, so you can go onto that group and you can find out where your local one is and then meet with like-minded people every Sunday and it's, you know, just get together and talk. And it's just, it's just a release. It's just um, something we really look forward to each week, just chatting and. Oh, I've had people, I've had people tell me it's vital that it's vital every yeah. Sunday. I've, um, I, I'm going to check out later on, is there one in Salford? There, I'm pretty sure there is one in Manchester. I wonder if there's one in, in Salford. I'll, I'll have a look at it um, and, and find out. But, but people should go to Stand in the Park on Facebook to find out more about it. Because I think now more yes, than ever... Stand in the Park UK. St oh, excuse me, Stand in the Park UK. Because now more than ever, most of us need that little bit of... Uh, kind of it's almost like a getting a boost isn't it just meeting people that can see what we can see and people who don't think you've got two heads or that you've fallen down some rabbit hole I can I can see why it could be it could be really important Nicola no doubt no doubt about that I do you know I'm I'm keeping I go through phases I had a very bad run last November then a few weeks back I got very bogged down again now I'm kind of emerging from that and I'm convinced that I'll tell you what, Nicola, I'm convinced, first of all, that 
I'm, I hope this gives people some hope. I don't believe, at least not in the next while, at least not in the next couple of years, that they will ever attempt to mandate jabs. I don't think they'll do that. I don't think people need to worry about somebody coming to their home in a car and giving them an ultimatum. I don't think that. And that gives me hope that. I really don't. Um, I think some people are going to get sick and that's going to be terrible for them and my heart will break for them. How that might present an opportunity for people like you, Nicola, and everybody else who writes on conservativewoman.co.uk because I think at that point the narrative will be variants, scariants, variants. They'll they'll blame Mm. it on new variants. But I think... By that stage, less people, maybe, maybe there'll be a reduction in the amount of gullible people and that might present an opportunity. Don't think for a minute now, dear listener, that I'm looking forward to large numbers of people becoming unwell. I hope they don't. I hope I'm wrong. But I think they will. But at the moment, I'm taking a more philosophical outlook on this and I'm quite happy. I think you, you summed it up brilliantly earlier on. I'm quite happy not to go to the arena not to go to the concert venues in Manchester. I can live with that now. Not to go here, not to go there. I can be content in my neighbourhood with my uh, partner, with our very small group of friends and the outdoors, the great outdoors, the local parks. I can live like that and I can regroup, I think. And that's where I am, Nicola, at the moment. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, we we can live without Elton John at Manchester Arena. (laughs) I've got it. I've got. We've got tickets for that. Do you know that we've because that was due to take place last year. We've got tickets for Elton John. I'm I'm opening myself up to ridicule here now, not just by you, Nicola, but by anybody else listening. Going to see Elton John, but I like to go and see all the legends, and um, that was postponed. Understandably, I definitely won't be going because I think Elton John has said that um, he expects everybody in attendance to have had two jabs. So so that, so oh I'll be putting I'll be putting tickets on sale. Uh, for 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 the face value, for the face value, I'm no doubt. Uh, Bruce Springsteen has done it as well. Don't expect to go and see Bruce unless you've had two jabs. So um, it's easy to get bogged down by that and to get fed up with it and to scream about it. But no, I'm going to smile and I'm going to say, fair enough, okay. We'll find other ways of living. We'll make our own concerts, Nicola. That's what we'll do. Yes, <laughs> That's what exactly. We'll do. <laughs> yeah, just don't, don't comply. Don't, you know. Don't go along with any of it. And I, I did actually see a tweet earlier, um, which I'm going to look into. Uh, somebody was saying that whilst the the jab is still in um, emergency it's, it, you know, phase, it's not. It can't be mandated anyway. Yeah. So illegally, I think. So that's a good point. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Yes, it's 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 under emergency use authorization at the moment. Yeah. yeah, so at the moment they can't do it. No, I think, look, they'll squeeze, won't they? I mean, when they said today that anybody who's had two jabs won't need to quarantine when they come back from holiday, that's just another carrot, isn't it? That's just another little bit of pressure in the hope that more people will go and take it. They'll coerce, they'll coerce, they'll coerce, but they won't be sending people around in in vans. People shouldn't worry about that. You know, I tell you what, Nicola, I, I mean this sincerely. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting, chatting with you today. I'm, I'm glad that you came on. I really am. I know I, I, I won't say you were dubious about coming on, but, but you were thinking about it. But uh, I'm glad you I came on. I didn't think I'd have the confidence to do it, to be honest. Will you stop? Will you give over? How could you stand in front of a classroom of crazy children and not have the confidence well, to yeah. come on here? 
I know I'm fine in front of children, but adults is a different thing. But um, yeah, it's been it's well, you've got a lovely way with you, and you you know you've you've made me feel really at, at ease. So um, yeah, well, so, so so have you. I, I imagine you would have been a great teacher, uh, Nicola. No, I mean that. You'll you'll continue, of course, to go to the stand in the park in Pembrokeshire, and of course you'll continue to write for conservativewoman.co.uk when there is a follow-up piece about um, your aunt because Nicola's going to want to find out why they were giving midazolam to her otherwise healthy senior, senior, but healthy aunt, 89, who uh, had a fall and was in hospital just to keep the weight off of her uh, off of her leg. They shouldn't listen, I'm risking risking sounding silly here, they shouldn't have given midazolam. There's no, no need for it. So you'll be and- trying to find out that, won't you? Yes, and you know what, Richie? She's been contacted no less than three times to have the jab. They they know she's housebound, and they have they've run her three times. And she's each time she said no, and she was told on the first occasion, "No, we'll put you on the on the refuse list." But they, the they still contacted her. And the the ironic thing is, we've had so many problems with. Um, online deliveries from you know tesco asda the, the, the big four none of the big four supermarkets will guarantee that she, they will leave shopping or bring shopping over the doorstep because they don't feel safe enough or the driver may not feel safe enough and yet the, the vaccination team are happy to enter her home and to give her the jab so it says it all really it says it all and i know that you'll be concerned with the government's plans to mandate the jab for people who work in care homes. Uh, I know because you mentioned earlier on, it might have implications for you going to visit your aunt. Um, hopefully not, you know, hopefully your, your aunt can say, no, no, I'm absolutely happy for my niece to come and see me. Um, but I know you'll keep us posted on that as well. Nicola, brilliant. Folks, uh, do follow Nicola, please. Uh, first of all, go to conservativewoman.co.uk, but follow her on uh, Twitter. If you look for Nicola Lund, it's L-U-N-D, you'll find her. But it's at Mrs. M-R-S Lund, isn't it? L-U-N-D. I think that's. I think I've gotten it right uh, for once. I know yeah. I get it wrong. Uh, do, do give Nicola a follow. Been a pleasure, Nicola. Thanks for sharing um, your insights with us and for your articles. And uh, I, I look forward to welcome, welcoming you back. Thank you very much, Richie. It's been lovely to chat. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Nicola. That's a former teacher and now journalist, Nicola Lund, speaking to us live from the beautiful Pembrokeshire in Wales. Lovely to have her on uh, the programme today. Vastly experienced uh, writer and uh, teacher. And let's hope that her aunt is OK and that um, there won't be any obstacles to Nicola going to visit her aunt and bringing her groceries. Because it is true, you know. That's what the Tesco's and the Sainsbury's have been saying. You know, it's not safe for us to bring uh, the the groceries into the house. What's happened to us, eh? That's today's programme. Thanks to Johan Tengra in Mumbai. Great guy. He'll be back on the programme. And to Nicola Lund. Lovely to have Nicola on as well. Listen, you have a great weekend. Check out Stand in the Park UK on Facebook. It might be something for you. And go and meet like-minded people. Form communities, I think that's the way forward. Um, We'll talk again on Sunday morning, Sunday morning melodies at 10 o'clock. Listen, it's not great. It's just me playing a few tunes and talking about those songs, but it's a bit different. Might be for you, might not be for you. That's Sundays at 10 o'clock, 10 to 12. And special thanks to my pal Gareth Ike for his help today with producing the programme. Always credit those who help you out. That's the way. Speaking of Gareth, 
This is him and a song that I absolutely love. It's called Jura. Have a fantastic weekend. Speak Sunday. Bye from the BBG. Bye now. Bye now.